climate change. Sometimes it does feel like too big of a challenge, doesn't it? There's a lot of talk about recycling, driving electric vehicles, eating less meat. But even if you do all that, sometimes it can feel like we're up against it. So I was feeling a little overwhelmed about the topic until I met one of the world's leading scientists in climate change research, who provided a bit of much needed optimism. I too think when push comes to shove, that we as humans are going to rise to the challenge and we have the ability, I think increasingly our technological abilities are impressive. And so when I look at what's possible out there, I do think in a matter of decades, we will have some solutions, we will have some collective action and we'll be able to move forward. That was all I needed to hear to motivate my conversation regarding one of the biggest challenges of the 21st century. So here's Dr. Susan Lozier, Dean of the College of Sciences at Georgia Tech and President of the 60,000-member American Geophysical Union. It's a fresh perspective you're going to want to listen to. Well, first of all, thanks ever so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. We, we greatly appreciate that, so thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to join you. So as we go into 2022, you know, I'd say climate change is at uh, the top of a lot of people's agenda. You know, we had COP26 coming at the back of last year and, and very much uh, a, a topic on everybody's uh, lips. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges we face? You know, I would say really right now, I think we have to rally the public and the politicians to sort of move forward. Um, as a scientist, in some ways, I think of like the scientists are passing the baton onto those, the technologists, the politicians, those in the policy world, to really move us into the solution space. You know, it's been now several decades where scientists have been sounding the alarm about climate change. And of course, there's the good news and the bad news of sort of like some of the real effects of climate change, you know, being apparent now. You I mean, the bad news obviously is that climate change, you know, effects are apparent. That's obviously not such good news. But it has really, I think, brought to the fore the really importance of this. So I would say the challenge now, there, there is still some science to be involved. You know, we have to figure out you know, some of the climate change solutions, what impacts they might have. But I really think right now the challenge is on the policy, political, technology front. I think we can, you know, get into some of the, the details of that um, later on in the discussion. But, but just, just sticking with the, the conversation, if you like, uh, at the moment, do, do, you, do you feel that we are moving to a point where we, we can address some of these issues from all those perspectives? Or, or, do, or do you think that the dialogue around uh, climate change is still challenging? You know, I think it's improving. And I don't necessarily think that improvement is like slow and linear. I think it is rapidly improving. And a lot of that has to do with sort of trying to finally disentangle sort of the politics from the science. I don't want to pretend that it's still not, you know, tangled. But you know, if we even say a decade ago, it was still really mired in very, very being a very partisan issue. And of course, I'm talking about here from the perspective, you know, of the United States. But I'll give you I'll give you just a quick example of a conversation I had 
with um, someone, this is a decade ago, I was giving a talk at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and I was talking about my work as an oceanographer. And I was talking about the oceans warming because of the, you know, excess of carbon dioxide. And afterwards, someone came up who'd attended the talk and said, well, I really enjoyed your talk, Professor Lozier, but I don't believe in any of that nonsense of what they always warning. tell you to do. And he sort of took a deep breath, you know, counted slowly to 10, you know. But before I could reply, he said, oh, but don't worry, I'm not one of those nuts because I do believe in sea level rise. And so I asked him, I said, well, why do you believe in sea level rise? And he said, well, I lived in Miami for 30 years. And over those 30 years, I could see that there was a change in the sea level rise. You know, streets would be flooded, you know, so I could see it. So, of course, I continued. And I said, well, why do you think there's been sea level rise? And he said, oh, because of ice melt. And I said, well, why do you think the ice has been melting? Right, you know, and so he paused. And this, he said to me, oh, well, I'll get back to you on that. I mean, so I realized that there was just really this conflation about the global warming, you know, that was a political issue. But his own observations had led him to see that there was this sea level rise. So there was this very twisted <laughs> knot, you know, of sort of the politics and the science. But I really, I think we're getting past that. Another thing I'll tell you now is I read last week an article in the New York Times about how meteorologists are increasingly in their for weather forecast bringing up the issue of climate change. And, you know, 20 years ago, I remember reading a survey where more than half of meteorologists didn't believe in climate change. So I do think that we are quickly improving the dialogue and moving in that direction. So, so let's talk a little bit about your field of specialty, you know, you being a, an oceanographer. Do you, do you think there's enough focus on the oceans when we talk about climate change? You know, I think what uh, I would like for people to appreciate is that we have two planetary fluids, and they are both the ocean and the atmosphere. And both of these planetary fluids are really involved in our climate system. And when we talk about global warming, the atmosphere is primarily warmed from below, meaning from the ocean, which covers 70% of the ocean. So it's really like not, there's not one that's more important than the other. They both really play a strong role. In fact, you know, in the UK, everybody appreciates the role of the ocean because we know that the latitudes in the UK are much more habitable, meaning warmer than they are comparable latitudes um, over in Canada because of the Gulf Stream, you know, waters. Of course, they're much, you know, they're much wetter as well. We all know about that in the UK being much I'm wetter. I'm sure you all, <laughs> <laughs> you, all, you all know about that all too well. So I would say that an appreciation for the ocean warming, which warms the atmosphere, and how both of those disruptions to both of those are really creating and will continue to create changes in our climate is important to understand. What are some of the effects that uh, uh, the climate change is having on the oceans? Well, the very obvious one I just mentioned is the ocean warming. Also, I mentioned earlier in that short story is about the sea level rise. The other one, which is has to do with the ocean warming and global warming as well, it's been very dramatic, is the ice change, particularly in the, in the Arctic. You can look at that summer ice extent, how it's been shrinking over the past, you know, several decades. And that has been something that we have a very good record of since we've been able to, you know, measure it um, with satellites. So those are, are very real effects 
with the ocean. And of course, as we move into the realm of extreme events, we are increasingly concerned about stronger hurricanes. I can also talk about the ocean acidification. So I think this is something that's a little uh, that people don't quite appreciate in that. If we go back, if I can take you back now about, I'm going to say about 25 years, when atmospheric scientists, climate scientists looked at how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere, and this is the carbon dioxide that has been emitted, you know, from fossil fuel uh, burning since the Industrial Revolution. They said that the estimate of how much was in the atmosphere was less than what was estimated to have been produced, you know, to have been put into the atmosphere. So the question about 20, 25 years ago was where has all the carbon gone? And so the race was on to see if it was in the terrestrial domain, you know, taken up by soils and the biota across the globe, or if it was in the ocean. And today, I mean, since about 15 years ago, we understand that about 25% of the carbon dioxide that has been put into the, into the atmosphere has been taken up by the ocean. So this is also a good news, bad news story, right? Good news because that carbon dioxide has not been in the atmosphere where it would create excess warming, but bad news for the ocean because that excess carbon dioxide means that the oceans are slowly uh, becoming more acidic. So I think that's one thing that people may not quite appreciate, uh, that the ocean is this carbon reservoir, that's the good part, but that that uptake of the ocean is creating a slow, gradual um, acidification of the ocean. So that's sort of the, the silent, lurking danger that is out there. Is there, you know, I think, uh, as you said, from your, uh, from your uh, uh, earlier, you know, example with, uh, you know, your listener, in terms of rising sea levels and uh, living in, in uh, Miami, like he did, how serious is rising sea levels? I mean, we, we anecdotally hear of, you know, little islands, and we worry about those little islands. But in terms of, you know, a sort of global issue, how big an issue is it? I think it's a very big issue. I think that the question really is the time scale, right? So the course we're on, I mean, already we know we've had we've had sea level rise. Um, but you're right. I think that outside of, you know, islands that most people, you know, don't really consider this, you know, a big threat. But the concern is always how quickly this might change. So Decades ago, I think when people thought about global warming or the impact of climate change, we thought of there being um, slow changes rolling out over over decades or centuries, and we would be able to you know to adapt. But people now talk about abrupt impacts, meaning I don't necessarily think things will happen very slowly. And so, in terms of sea level rise, I'm sure you hear stories about. Wonder if ice shelves, you know, in, in Antarctica or, or Greenland could just collapse and what might happen. And so, so this is where really the science comes in uh, to play, even though I said that the scientists have passed the baton on to technologists and policymakers. I didn't mean that entirely. There's still quite a bit to understand. But this, I think, is really a, a uh, really a hot button issue, trying to understand the pace at which we might expect sea level rise to change. You know how how abruptly. So I would say this is quite serious when you think about not only how many people live on coastlines throughout the world. I think I heard an estimate that, you know, in another twenty years, something like at ninety percent 
of the world's population will live within 50 miles of the coastline. I don't have those numbers exactly right, but we are increasingly, you know, creating large urban centers on those coastlines. So it's really quite a serious issue. Do you have any idea what, what sort of timescale are we talking about? So I think it depends on where you are, right? I think it's already a threat to some places. Like if you talk about in the, um, the Virginia area, what's called the Norfolk News area already, they have, you know, quite a lot of problems with encroaching, you know, um, sea level. So it really depends on, on where you are globally. But I would say within two, three decades, it's going to be quite a problem almost everywhere. There was the recent, you know, intense rainfall, you know, in New York where these, you know, the subway system was flooded. So the, the built environments also just thinking about that infrastructure and that how that needs to be adapted is something that's really quite serious. Can we talk, turn to uh, not solutions per se, but some of the, the remedies, if you like? And uh, can we start with uh, technology? And uh, I'm fascinated by the use of technology in terms of uh, uh, climate change. And particularly in the United States, you know, whether it be uh, carbon capture, whether it be batteries for renewables, how important a role do you think technology has to play? I think technology has a big role to play in moving forward. I know there's, you know, some people talk about what the individuals have to do and, you know, individual responsibilities, and I, and I can talk about that. But I do feel as though investments in technology is something that's going to, I hope, lead us, you know, lead us out of here. And in terms of the ocean, you talked about carbon capture, there, you know, there are actually there was just a nice National Academies report that came out, authored by um, Scott Doney from the University of Virginia, or I should say, he was the chair of the group that looked at this, and it's really quite interesting that we are now talking about, you know, the ocean's role um, in being able to capture some of this carbon, but that involves some technologies that need, you know, to be further developed. But the framework is starting to be put out there, so I personally think that not being a technologist i personally think though that this these are advances that are going to be make a difference you know here in the us the department of energy secretary jennifer granholm talks about the earth shot you know making analogy to what the you know the moon shot that was needed now 50 60 70 you know years ago um, so it's going to take investment private investment investments on the tar- on part of governments uh, to move us forward here we talk a little bit about uh, sort of human action, if if you like, and I'm quite interested to get your view in terms of both what you know what an individual can do, if you like, in terms of their own carbon footprint and uh, and communities, what uh, communities can do. So, do you think there's a big difference that an individual communities can make? I think individual communities can work on mitigation, and they can work to make their own community. Resilient. I think it's very hard for an individual community to tackle the larger question about carbon reduction, et cetera. You know, that has to be done on a global scale. But I do think absolutely communities can work on, yeah, making their own community more resilient. They can focus on infrastructure. They can focus on, a, you know, emergency plan. Those that are vulnerable to heat waves can think about what they can do in response to heat waves or those that are on coastlines that are vulnerable to hurricanes. So I think individual communities can absolutely uh, focus on that mitigation and both adaptation aspects, and they should. But I think that should be done at, at the local level with support, you know, from the national government. 
I mean, we're all encouraged to do our bit at the moment, aren't we? Whether it's, uh, you know, driving yes. an electric car, eating less meat or, or you know, etc. So uh, what's your what's your view on what an individual can or should do to uh, to help? Yeah, I certainly think those things are important. And I try to practice those myself, own an electric car, try to eat less meat, reduce carbon footprint. But we can't count on that. And I feel like it's putting too much on an individual. I honestly feel as though the elected officials or government officials, you know, because we don't all live in democratic countries, I feel like they have the responsibility. Um, you know, we've the public places their trust in them. What an individual can do then, I feel very strongly, an individual can vote uh, where they have, you know, the access to the vote. They can vote for those who are advocating for policies and investment and climate change solutions. Individuals can also contribute money if they have the resources, you know, to groups that are um, advocating for climate change. They can, you know, work collectively with others. So to me, it's really individual actions. Of course, you can be, provide a role model, but those collectively are not enough. So to me, it is you know, here in the U.S., I just encourage people all the time to vote because I, I really do think it is the um, at the larger, the national global scale where we're going to affect change. I think that's really interesting. And I'd like to unpick that a little bit if I could. So maybe talking a little bit about leadership and uh, leadership in a couple of different facets, really. I mean, you're a leader. Do you think uh, leaders such as yourself have a responsibility in terms of, because part of this is education, isn't it? Part of this is, you know, is galvanizing and it's quite a, it's quite a, a big role. And uh, do you think there is a role for leadership here? Oh, absolutely. And I know I was uh, stressing the responsibility that elected officials have. But I appreciate you pointing out, Stephen, that there's leadership positions at universities. I hold a leadership position at university, and I also hold a leadership position at AGU. So first, I'll talk about my leadership role at AGU. And AGU is the American Geophysical Union, and it is a professional society of about 60,000 Earth, atmospheric, ocean scientists, planetary scientists, so geoscientists and, you know, and space scientists. And AGU just recently celebrated 100 years of being a professional society. And most of those 100 years really focused on what we call discovery science, very proud history of discovery science, you know, going to the depths of the ocean, measuring the atmosphere, figuring out, you know, the geology, the earth, etc. But um, a year and a half ago, we have created a new strategic plan where this society decided that we want to continue, you know, a focus on discovery science, but more further, you know, fully embrace solution science and really moving into the realm of what we can do um, in terms of meeting the challenge of the, the climate crisis. So I would say in that regard, I'm very proud of that. AGU also, we just recently voted to, to divest, had a tiny bit of our investments in mutual funds that still has some fossil fuel holdings. We divested. We're moving toward a portfolio that is carbon neutral. So in that, in these ways, there are, I feel like there's leadership steps uh, that AGU is taking to, you know, contribute to this. As um, a dean of the College of Sciences, I also feel as though I have a role to play, and that is in terms of, you know, educating 
the next generation. One of the things I think it's really important is to articulate a vision for the future that is sustainable. You know, there has, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago, whatever, there's a lot of, and some people still feel as though it's all doom and gloom. I don't view it that way. I think that those of us in leadership positions have the responsibility to look ahead, sort of say, we can do this, here's what's possible, here's how you can contribute, because we don't want this to be, and it isn't a hopeless situation. So I would say everybody, you know, educators, people in other leadership positions have the responsibility in large part to support the younger generation. You know, they are very earnest um, and very fervent you know, in their desire to uh, solve this climate crisis. And in some ways, we have to really, we can't let them down, is what I would say. Absolutely. I, I've just got a couple of questions around that to, to finish off with. One, just sticking with the leadership issue. And and I think, you know, as, as you said, in terms of encouraging people to vote, you know, where, where people can vote, all of us will have seen COP26 playing out in Glasgow and we'd have seen delegations from all the various governments and the protesters. And how important is it, do you think, that uh, people engage at that top political level so not just voting but actually making sure that everybody you know in those political positions know of their points of view oh i think it's very important yes and so earlier i said absolutely voting but also just adding your voice collectively i would say to movements i think that's very important i mean that story about the protest right i think gained as much press as the story of what was going on inside and so kudos to everybody who was out there. Of course, we're looking for nonviolence, nonviolent, you know, protest. But those voices, I think that's incredibly important. Absolutely. And my final question really just comes back to a couple of things that you've said that I find your position a really interesting one. And because you're very upfront about the challenge, you're very upfront about the issues that we face. And it was also interesting the way that you talked about the AGU movement to, you know, solutions, uh, not just uh, uh, discovery. But at the same time, you're quite or reasonably optimistic and you you feel that it's a challenge that we can live up to which does differentiate you from quite a few people that you know one speaks to let me finish with this how optimistic are you that over over the next 10 years or so that we can we can use these great strengths that we have to bring these solutions to bear yeah i'm going to i'm going to answer that question but i'm going to say about a decade i do think that it's going to take a little longer for us to turn things around. So I think things are going to get a little worse before they get better. So I'm going to I'm going to put a time scale on my optimism. Is that fair? That's perfect. <laughs> um, some of this just has to do with nature, right? I mean, um, and also none of us really knows how the future is is going to unfold. And so I too think when push comes to shove that we as humans are going to um, rise to the challenge. And we have the ability, I think increasingly our technological abilities are impressive. And so when I look at what's possible out there, I do think in a matter of decades, not a, not a decade, Stephen, but I do think in a matter of decades, we will have um, some solutions, we will have some collective action, and we'll, we'll be able to move forward. It's also just a matter of how people choose to view things. And so 
I think that we're all working on the same solution, some perhaps with some pessimism and some with optimism, but I think if, as long as we're all, all agreeing on what needs to be done, that's, that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Well, thank you ever so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. It was so interesting. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's happy to join you. As you heard, Dr. Lozier was hesitant to predict how the future will unfold, but I'll continue to press the issue in our next episode of Innovations Uncovered, where our topic turns to the transport revolution. People are understanding that that transportation isn't all about uh, a road and a bridge. Transportation is about mobility, and I think that's the focus that's going to change. It's an episode you won't want to miss. My guest, Kirk Studel, is a well-known name in the U.S. automotive and transportation industry, and he shares his insight on Innovations Uncovered, the second season of On The Edge. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and follow to be alerted when the new episodes are released. Until next time, I'm Stephen Horne.